a lot of people will ask for proof of life after death or evidence or whatever else. And as soon as you hear that, you need to be cautious because any scientist will tell you that science doesn't deal with proof. It never has and it shouldn't. Proof is, you know, mathematics. Science only deals with strong or weak evidence and the most likely explanation for a certain set of data. just happened. I'm your host, Liz Enton. If you listen to the intro, you know my story. If not, here's a brief summary. I'm a sciencey skeptic, and when my dad died, I took a shot in the dark and decided to investigate if there was any possible evidence of an afterlife. I assumed that was as realistic as Santa Claus, but I was desperate. However, I was so blown away by what I discovered that I wrote a book and launched this podcast. In this podcast, I will be talking to some fairly normal people about some really weird shit. I speak with everyone from psychic mediums and afterlife researchers to ordinary people who've had some inexplicable experiences. So come, listen, there's no need to draw any final conclusions. Keep an open mind and wonder, what the fuck just happened? In today's episode, I speak with Darren McKenney. Like me, he was a skeptic who researched through the evidence of Psy and an afterlife. He was also pretty blown away by how substantial all the evidence turned out to be something he did not expect any more than I did. He also has a podcast on the same topic called Seeking Eye. I'll link to it in the show notes. He works with IANS, International Association of Near-Death Studies, and is overall a really smart, fascinating guy. Today we talk about what caused us two skeptics to change our minds about an afterlife. So welcome, everyone. I am here with Darren, I keep calling you Darren Mack because I, when I first met you, that's what you were going by. So I'm gonna ask you to properly introduce yourself. Is it Mack? I'm gonna mispronounce it, so please introduce yourself. Everyone does. Don't worry about it. My name's Darren McKenney. It's an Irish name. It's difficult to pronounce. No one ever gets it right. Um, I'm effectively just a lay researcher of consciousness and life after death. Uh, I was like you. I was a skeptic to begin with. Uh, never, I'll say skeptic. I just never really believed anything was was true about any kind of life after death or, or consciousness beyond the brain until I started looking at it through necessity um, from depression and anxiety uh, caused by a fear of death. And having started looking into it, I, I effectively changed my mind on it <laughs> because as I say, you know, previously I'd never had the need to look into this stuff. And so I just took it for granted that it must be all bunk. Um, but when I started looking into it and talking to the experts for my own podcast, you start to realize that you can't have opinions on these sort of things if you're not familiar overly familiar with the research and the science done on it that's pretty familiar to my story i mean the source was different of what made me explore do you guys know unfortunately my dad died but i noticed that darren and i had a similar path in that we assumed this was absolutely not true just you know we're absolutely shocked 
So do you mind sharing a little what was the first steps you took that made you explore this? The very first book you opened or the first thought you had that made you think, wow, maybe there really is something else. It's difficult to gauge because I've been doing it for so long. I mean, I started looking at it originally when I was 12. I'm 25 now, so what, 13 years ago. And that came... I say as a result of a, it was a, I experienced a traumatic event when I fainted in a science lesson, uh, and that for some reasons triggered off anxiety and, and depression, um, figured around focused around a fear of death. What I did to begin looking at it after that is difficult to, to remember. I think the near death experience was the first thing I found because it was the most common, the most popular kind of thing at that time in relation to it. When I first looked at it, it was it was I think the near death experience because it was it was kind of a culturally interesting subject, and it was everywhere. So when I started looking at it, the first thing I thought was you know hallucination, dying brain. Even at twelve, you know, I was aware that that is that could be nothing but just a, a hallucination. But I read a, a few and I found them interesting because they were all so similar. And my first thought was, well, you know, if it is a hallucination, it's a very persistent one, a very similar one that everyone is experiencing the same thing and that kind of garnered interest a little bit more but i didn't think much of it until i came across veridical perception in near-death experiences where people who are in a situation where they're effectively brain dead especially during cardiac arrest are able to see things and report back accurately things they see either in the, in the, the near vicinity in the operating room or the recovery room or outside of their in, um, immediate area in other hospital rooms or other sometimes other countries in some instances and that really did kind of garner a lot more interest because now it seemed to have an empirical basis too i didn't have the language to understand what that meant back then but it did it did really pique my interest yeah near-death experiences you know that and i also know seems like it's just initially well it's just your brain like your brain coping with terror of death with the trauma with physical pain maybe depending like you're gonna make up some story to get through it there were a few ones that there was actually evidence behind and that was pretty shocking i know that for me you know i actually remember hearing about near-death experiences when i was about 12 or 13 and i just had this twinge of oh my god could this possibly be true and I asked my mom and my mom's a therapist and she works with neuroscientists. And remember, she said, this is really interesting. And then she was like, yeah, well, like the next day or next week, she said she asked some of the neuroscientists she worked with and they laughed and were just like, oh, you know, this is just a bunch of nonsense. It's brain making sense of trauma. And that was, you know, very much my upbringing. So I didn't hear about them until after my dad died. And I started reading again and I was pretty amazed. You know, so was there one you read about that you were just like, this is life changing or this makes me change my perspective? The one that really sticks out in mind, and it wasn't until later, was the Pam Reynolds case, the famous one, because that had so much medical data surrounding the timing and everything in association with you know, what was taking place in the in the procedure and the procedure itself was such a was such a invasive thing you know that required by definition the brain to be drained completely of blood and frozen effectively that there was you'd think no way whatsoever any perception should take place and now there is 
there is debate on when the experiences took place as opposed to or in relation to when the brain was completely drained a lot of the perceptions took place while she was under heavy anesthesia but the brain was still you know it still had blood and it still was functioning however and throughout the whole procedure the eeg was measured and it was flat throughout the throughout the time the perceptions took place and we know that because the eeg was being monitored 24 7 throughout the whole procedure as was necessary and that was i mean as andrew just said it's contested famously by dr gerald verley who is of the opinion that it, it was all very much explainable physically and you know that's the importance of, of looking at both sides of these sort of things because i mean when i was first introduced to the case and even now you know i'm not fully confident with the the entire details of the case which is why i look to the experts who have researched it in depth on both sides you know um there's a guy i know i won't mention his name because he doesn't like to show himself much online who's a researcher who's gone extensively into the case and i spoke to him asking about the details and also gerald verley who's also done very extensive research on the case but has come to the other conclusion and you bring them together mention to each other each other's arguments and then compare what they say and to me you know that case remains probably one of the strongest because simply of the the way you can collate the medical records and the eeg measurements with the times that the experience took place and what was seen and what was confirmed my thought on debunking i mean i feel there's a preponderance of very very strong evidence of an afterlife and there isn't concrete proof i mean there just never will be and there can't be as far as i know i mean i when i really think about things there isn't proof of almost anything because you can always have an alternate conclusion and i feel very often the quote-unquote debunkers are just offering another theory of very complicated inexplicable go against physics as we understand it experiences and you could make up i don't want to say make up because very often it sounds like they draw logical conclusions but i would you know kind of take that i don't want to say not take it seriously because i always think putting together theories is something that for the most part minus some absurdities should always be at least listened to and respected because it's how people are putting together information that's a very important thing to do as a human to process information to think about it but when you start putting them all together with the evidence behind them that's when i'm like well maybe one set of debunking or materialist conclusion works for this specific case but then how do they explain this one and then the next one and then you see that the debunking or you know even a less degrading word like materialist conclusion behind all these don't seem to have a common thread but the non-local consciousness begins to have a common thread. You know, for example, recently, you know, Dr. Bruce Grayson, who is a near-death experience researcher through Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia. And that was one of the people who got me to first really consider something's going on with NDEs. He has a story where he was a brand new doctor. He was a psychiatrist, you know, traditional materialist. And a woman, I believe she had attempted suicide and he was a new doctor and wanted to be really professional. He had this big spaghetti stain on his tie and he was so embarrassed and he was alone in a room when he discovered it and he hid it. I mean, so no one could see it. And he goes into this woman who's unconscious and I might have like a small detail wrong. So don't hold that against me if you read it. But I believe when she came out of her 
coma. The next day, I mean, the, he was in a clean outfit. She commented about seeing him in the other room, trying to hide the spaghetti sauce stain. And again, if it was just those two cases, I would be, you know, a lot more inclined to stick with the materialist conclusions, but there's hundreds and I mean, probably thousands and thousands. And one thing I find really interesting is since I've started like quote unquote coming out of the closet that I'm really interested in this stuff. There's so many just ordinary people I meet that don't spend their time on this. They're just doing normal jobs, you know, normal life. And a lot of them are like, oh yeah, I never told anyone, but I had an NDE or my mom did or my best friend did. And, you know, they don't talk about it. So I think it's so much more prevalent than we realize. And, you know, the one common thread through them all seems to be a non-materialist explanation. I think going back to what you said about proof is an important point to make. A lot of people will ask for proof of life after death or evidence or whatever else. And as soon as you hear that, you need to be cautious because any scientist will tell you that science doesn't deal with proof. It never has and it shouldn't. Proof is, you know, mathematics. Science only deals with strong or weak evidence and the most likely explanation for a certain set of data. You know, that's what a theory is. It's it's the most plausible explanation to a phenomena that's measured. It's why, you know, the theory of evolution is the leading theory because it is so strong with the evidence to support it. That's the other thing, you know, when people say it's just a theory, it's not true. You know, it's not a fact. No, it's not a fact, but a theory is the highest level of scientific accuracy you can get. The debunkers, in, and immediately there's a red flag because the term debunk implies that there must be bunk to to show and nine times out of ten what i've seen with people who are vocally opposed to this sort of thing is that they work off their common sense based on what they've understood throughout their other experiences and their other research into different areas a good example that i always use is neil degrasse tyson very smart guy a very brilliant astrophysicist and he gave his opinion on near-death experiences and no matter how smart the guy is, and it just it just highlights an example that, you know, doesn't matter how intelligent generally you are on a specific subject, the way he, he talked about it, you could tell he's never dived into the literature of it deep enough to get a full context overview of, of the science that's been done on it. And it seems to be the same with a lot of these debunkers, that they're basing their opinions off of their common sense from their own areas of expertise, which is... Fair enough, but unfortunately, you can't talk with such confidence on a subject if you haven't done the complex research into it and looked at the looked at the data, talked to the people that collected the data and their ideas, and really, you know, really dived into into the subject itself. I mean, I'm generally quite an intelligent guy, and I'm I'm good with psychology. I'm good with near death experiences and things like that. But just because I'm intelligent, you know, don't ask me to tell you how a washing machine works because I haven't got a clue. So, you know, an intelligence in one area doesn't imply that you have knowledge of any other specialist subject, you know, which is why a lot of these opinions come from, especially online, where it's a very, almost a fun, fundamentalist kind of view on this sort of thing, come from sharing and watching videos of people who, although are brilliant scientists, have never looked at the research and assuming that they must be correct simply because of their credentials outside of, of near-death studies. And 
unfortunately, you know, the experts that you should go to with this kind of research is those who have spent the last 30, 40, 50 years studying specifically the subjects you're looking at. You know, Jan Holden, Bruce Grayson, Raymond Moody, and Michael Sabom, you know, all, all these people who have specifically. And that's why I, I have a lot of respect, although I disagree with what he says um, generally. And there are there is contention as to his motives. I don't know. But I have a lot of respect for Gerald Verley and his opinions because he has done the work and he has spent the time reading over the case specifically pam reynolds and the dentures case he has put the work in and he is very familiar with the background of it so i would much rather listen to his skeptical opinion on it than say um dr neil degrasse tyson who's who although has a an educated opinion on his common sense from his work in other areas of science doesn't have that specific knowledge of the subject at hand I mean, how can you really know something until you specifically dive into it? People could be brilliant at one thing. Something like consciousness, you can't understand something so complex or even claim to understand it because they are baffled still at how brain neurons, which really is a material mass or matter, even creates consciousness. That doesn't make any more sense than the fact or not the fact, the theory that consciousness is non-local and stored in a bank somewhere, downloaded by a brain. And to me, I guess one thing I think about a lot related to consciousness in a brain, I tend to think if it was purely materialist, it might just be very survival-based, you know, concerns about getting food, getting... Not that we don't have those as basic concerns... But the human experience is so much more complex than that. Yes, we have our survival instincts, but we even put them to the side for things that are a more deeper spiritual meaning or not even spiritual, but I'm just talking about love, for example, you know, I mean, it's not survivalistly convenient to give away your money to causes or, you know, right now my cat just jumped up here. My life would be easier without my cat in terms of survival or my dog. I mean, their pains and I have to use my money to take care of them and I have to interrupt my survival work to walk them. And But love is more important and helping causes I care about that, you know, might not absolutely not affect me. And many people feel that and inconvenience themselves and put themselves at risk or yeah, love, for example, really does feel like one of the most powerful emotions. And in many ways, you know, I mean, it's just there's nothing survival or the way brain neurons would put together the need to exist in a material planet. That It just seems so much more to have much more depth and complexity than only evolution. And I just need to give a disclaimer. I think people who follow this also know I'm pretty much an atheist. I guess I'd say an evidentialist and I haven't seen evidence of a God. I mean, I absolutely respect anyone's belief system. Please don't take that wrong. Just my approach is not about belief. And so when I say we're more than Darwinian evolution, I tend to think evolution is the, I don't want to say it's the answer because I think some things are, how do we know we weren't created through a video simulation, the way some physicists talk about. But I think it makes the most sense of any explanation I've heard so far. And going down that path is going to most likely give us the right answers. And it most likely has a portion of the truth. I just never want to say ever that I something so complicated 
could be the final answer. You ever wonder what mediums do with their free time? How about a 30-something-year-old gay medium living in New York City? Well, in this podcast, you're about to find out. Welcome to Ghost Daddy, a place where LGBTQ plus spiritual people and our cis-hetero allies, of course, have a place to just be themselves and spread their wisdom. This is the new face of spirituality. None of that love and light, toxic positivity crap. So pour yourself a vodka soda, <laughs> open up your mind, and start listening. You can listen to the Ghost Daddy podcast anywhere where you listen to podcasts. Inspired by David Justice, who died after a nearly two-year battle with glioblastoma, Jet, Joyful Experience Team, was founded by his son Oliver Justice and his best friends, River Attard, Leo Gerstein, Jack Gorenstein, and Felix Ward. Jet seeks to create joyful experiences for families struggling with brain cancer, a chance to enhance their lives with experiences that are rich in love and will be treasured for all time. We believe, like David did, that life should not be measured in time, but in joyful moments. JET will allow families coping with this painful diagnosis to go to special events and be treated like VIPs. Go to makingheadway.org forward slash JET for a complete list of programs and activities. Um, but yeah, I mean, following the line of reasoning that the theory of evolution provides, I think is going to be the most accurate way of determining where the human animal really came from, as opposed to following a creationist route, for instance, uh, because the evidence is so strong for it. That doesn't mean it's complete as we understand it now. There are holes, there are things that are wrong. And it's now just a case of refining it to fit new or you know adjustable evidence that comes. But going back to the brain being fundamentally, you know, neurons, which further fundamentally are matter, you know, particles, quarks, what, whatever. You. Good example of why that seems such such a difficult thing to quantify of creating consciousness is uh, a good example from Bernardo Castrop, who who, as an analogy, states that you know if we consider the brain being what it is, you know, effectively a, a binary system of on and off switches, action potential or no action potential. Um, we can look at it as the same way as uh, taps and pipes and pressure valves. I don't know if you've come across this one, but effectively, if you have a series of taps and pipes and you were to able to, you were able to match that to the complexity of a, a, a neuronal mass in the brain uh, and you were able to exactly map the brain in terms of pipes and water valves and, and taps, You'd be saying that that system, it might be as big as, as the planet, but you'd be able to make that system conscious just by turning on some taps in a certain order. And does that seem reasonable to say that if you were to turn these taps on in a specific orientation, knowing that it's just taps and water, would that could you then reasonably say that that would become conscious when it becomes complex enough? And to me, that's a good thought experiment because from anyone's common sense, you'd, you'd think that no, taps and water can't be conscious just depending if they're switched on or not. And that is effectively you know, what the brain is. It's just neurons firing or not firing electrical impulses, all of which are matter, non-conscious matter, 
by their very foundations. So the question is, you know, and every piece of evidence that's ever been used for the theory that the brain generates consciousness is correlatory, which means that um, a conscious experience takes place and a certain part of the brain lights up. And because it's consistent with certain areas of the brain lighting up under certain conditions of consciousness, it's assumed that that is a causational link. And of course, you've got, you've got the old correlation does not imply causation. But the problem is because we don't have a mechanism as to how consciousness could exist without the brain, because it's never been you know, measurably observed to take place, which to me it has with third party veridical perception and things like that. Because it's not been accepted, it's seen as a lot less likely and magical thinking. But my argument to that is, well... Fine, we don't have a mechanism as to how consciousness could exist mechanistically beyond the brain, nor do we have a mechanism as to how it could be generated by non-conscious matter. And the same evidence, correlationary, can be used for both explanations. It's just to accept that we don't have the mechanism of how the brain can create it, and you immediately have an equal strength theory. But I think that just the way the culture is and has developed, it's seen that it must be the case that the brain creates it, even though the evidence is not is not stronger. And in my belief, the evidence is stronger for a a receiver filter kind of theory because we have these anomalous experiences of consciousness which cannot be explained outside of saying it's all illusion and, and delusion or lies. And the evidence is there for me to say that it's more likely, more parsimonious to say that the brain receives consciousness and filters it and and translates it in a certain way that allows us to experience life as it it currently is there is a third option of course which is the idealist perspective that consciousness or that the brain isn't the image of consciousness uh, in a physical form the same way that i suppose combustion the process of combustion is fire in physical form you know the image the fire is the image of combustion um but looking at physical and non-physical kind of overlaps and it does get very convoluted but it's it, it gets to the point where once you get these kind of these visual examples of taps and pipes, you start to think, yeah, I mean, that's true. I've never really thought of it, but you've always taken it as the assumption that the scientists understand that the brain does create consciousness, although there's no reason to outside of correlation and cultural kind of implications. I have a question because I noticed this with myself and a lot of people that tend to be really skeptical, but use that skepticism to really examine the evidence of afterlife, non-local consciousness, all things. I don't like the word paranormal, but I don't really have a better word at this point. This was my process, and this seems to be pretty much across the board. So I'm curious if you had this too. It's like you step in and you're blown away and you're like, wow, there seems to be something going on here. But there's this whole stage in the beginning where you're like, oh, I'm sure this can't be true. This sounds amazing, but... And then something happens that's kind of a turning point where you're fairly shocked and you're like, this really seems to be something. I mean, that doesn't mean you conclude it. It's a very long, maybe lifelong investigation. What did you have something like that? I would never have looked at the subject further if I didn't have that experience of fainting, which led to the anxiety and the depression. Um, I had a breakdown at 16 and became suicidal. And I think getting to that point, where you know, you reach the very bottom where you're willing to take your own life to, to get out of having to cope with it. I think after that, it forces you into, into I suppose, looking for meaning. And that's it can become dangerous because then you've got a natural bias that takes over for wanting something to be true. And I mean, especially with me, with the, the fear of death, you know, I wanted to find evidence to support 
the idea that it doesn't, even though I didn't well, to support the idea that the brain or that um, consciousness doesn't end at death. And of course, there is the danger there that you're going to be very subject to confirmation bias. But as I say, before then, I took it for granted that once we die, that's it. And there's no reason to think otherwise. I think a lot of people who think like that have never had some reason to really push themselves into it. And it's just, as I say, taken for granted. But most people who do believe in this sort of thing have done so out of necessity through some sort of traumatic event or some sort of any event that pushed them as a necessity to do so. A lot of people, I think, especially at our age, never need to think about it. And not until they become older and that becomes a much more impending situation that it really does force you to begin to to look at it. So for me, yeah, that was that was the turning point was as my anxiety developed and it started really focusing around the fear of death. I know you said sometimes kind of we go into this based on the necessity. And this is one thing that sometimes worries me because it was necessity. I mean, I was that level of depression too, mine based on grief, you know, after I lost my dad, just feeling like, how do I even live in this world without my dad? Like, what's the point? And I'm going to lose my mom at some point too. And hopefully I'll have children one day, meet someone and that I'm going to, you know, they're going to just turn around and lose me, you know, or maybe I'd lose them. You know, I mean, who knows? We're all going to lose each other and sort of what is the point? And like, how do you go on with just knowing everyone you love you're going to lose? So it's a worry for me. Why do you think you're not lying to yourself? You can only process so much. And sometimes your brain will give you survival, like psychologically survival answers to things, you know, I mean, this isn't a neutral investigation. How do you know your brain isn't just or, you know, your unconscious, whatever the word is, you know, my mom is a psychoanalytic therapist would say it's your unconscious telling you a story and putting the evidence together in a way so you can function. How do you know you're not doing that? It would be very easy to to for that to be true if I focus mainly on the subjective aspects of these phenomena. And I see it a lot, for instance, on a lot of Facebook groups focused around this sort of thing, deathbed visions and well, not even that, but, you know, after death communication, things like that, and people posting pictures saying, I've, I've captured my, my deceased son on camera. And they circle a part of the picture and you look at it and it's, there's nothing there. And you can tell, you know, it's this is a matter of, I can't remember what the effect is called, but it, it is effectively your brain or your mind or whatever telling you that there's evidence there when there isn't confirmation bias, which is why, and it could be very, you could say the same thing for near-death experiences in general that contain only a, um, a transpersonal aspect where you go into this new realm and see things and come back and it's just subjective. I could easily dismiss those as, as hallucinations or as a dying effect of the dying brain releasing chemicals and a lot of people take those as as accurate and i can see why because there's so many of them saying very similar things but for me it's not enough and that's why i focus mainly on the empirical based aspects where there are third-party verification of perceptions that shouldn't have been able to take place because i think with that aspect unless you really do really do go beyond the box and say it's all a matter of self-delusion it's all a matter of people lying faulty memory despite having that that connection to real life that you can you know that is third party verified to me saying that sort of thing is much less likely to be the case than that there is an actual phenomena going on that shouldn't take place with a materialistic background so i try and eliminate as much bias as possible though i do acknowledge it's there by looking only really at the empirical foundations of these experiences and trying to really put them together into a into a way that would 
that would make sense. And I mean, another big part of that is recognizing that those sort of biases take place. I'm oh, sorry, there's my little pup outside. Um, take place also and strongly in the current prevailing paradigm of, of you know materialism and, and the brain produces consciousness. Because again, the idea that the brain produces consciousness is effectively a, a very baseless kind of assumption based only on empirical, not empirical, based on correlationary information. There's no empirical basis as to how non-conscious matter could create consciousness, but we assume it must happen because of the very tight correlations. But again, you could argue that the, the brain receiving theory or even the idealist perspective, which is just as reasonable, is also the case because of the same correlations plus the empirical anomalous experiences that feed into that idea but don't feed into materialism. So it's much more parsimonious. And you see the same biases and the same almost self-delusions or you know, assumptions in the prevailing paradigm. It's just whether you recognize that they are assumptions and not empirically based or not, um, which... Unfortunately, with the culture and, and the profitability of, of material-based science, the encouragement is there to continue that paradigm as opposed to oppose it with new information. You see it all the time where paranormal, if you want to use that word, research, parapsychological research is extremely underfunded and you're dissuaded often to to pursue it because it's not going to benefit you academically or career in a career kind of setting. And as a result, people see it as, as woo or certainly not worthy of scientific inquiry in some cases it's not even seen as a science which is unfortunate so how do i know that i'm not lying to myself i don't <laughs> but i try to eliminate it as much as possible by focusing only on empirical based information for these experiences and by acknowledging that those self lies or self delusions or put it a nicer way biases will always exist on both sides of the fence and it's just trying to eliminate them as much as possible and recognizing them when they come up I feel somewhat similar, you know, because people will say you're lying to yourself because you need this to be true. I mean, I've definitely heard that a lot. And I mean, there's a lot of reasons like, sure, I can read all the books in the world. And that for me personally, yes, that's been a big part of my conclusion of why I think this is true. But I also have to go just on data and facts that I've personally experienced. I've gotten medium readings. Of course, I want to make things fit. But I'll sit there, I take every precaution, fake names, hide my identity, use a VPN. I mean, just every single thing I can think of, you know, who knows, maybe I left something out, but I tried to ask skeptics that I really didn't get any good feedback except the generic, basically none of this is true because none of this is true. And I was hoping for something like looking through and saying, wow, I can't figure anything out or, hey, this is a hole you need to fill and fix. But what I do is I get the medium reading I recorded. Of course, each reading's emotional, but I'm careful to not give information. And then I mean, it's hard to really know in the moment. So I always listen to the recordings and I make transcripts and I look at each part. Like, did I say anything? And usually I never say anything other than yes, no. And does this apply? I mean, if someone's getting my dad's name or specific memory or aspects of his personality... And I can see all the stuff that me, you know, that they say mediums do to cheat, you know, or give vague information or give 30 names before. Yeah, I mean, I have I had readings like that? Sure. Have I had ones that are absolutely inexplicable by normal means? Yes. I've had plenty inexplicable by normal means. All you need is to have had one like that to show 
that somehow consciousness is behaving non-locally. I mean, granted, if you just have one like that, you probably need to investigate further. A very concrete thing was bending a spoon. I mean, that just show I bent a spoon once. I haven't been able to do it another time. And I think something that adds an evidence to that is I have gone to spoon bending events with other people that are more like have psychic abilities than I do. I mean, I really don't. And we would take the same exact spoons and we were all women about the same size, small, you know, not ones that can just bend metal with our muscles. And it'd be the same spoon. I would try to bend it and I couldn't. And I'd pass off the exact same one to someone with abilities and they could bend the same spoon. So the combination of having done it once to that, I mean, that's a very concrete, tangible thing and really again all you need is one time and i've had multiple and when you say bending spoons you don't mean like you know bending spoons. you mean like holding it and having it bend i did bend it over but not like using muscles and now we're gonna pause for a second for the question of the week in this week's question sydney t wants to know hey liz do you ever get any amazing signs from your dad or for any of your loved ones? Hey, Sydney, thanks for asking. Yeah, I actually have gotten some really, like, kind of mind blowing what is going on signs. Even early on, when I didn't believe any of this could be true, I did have to kind of consider a few of them. And since then, I've gotten more and more. I mentioned a couple amazing ones in my book. I discuss another one that happened a little later in episodes one and two with Joe Peretta. So I'll tell you one of these ones here. So this one is in my book, but early on, I was walking through Central Park and I'm a New Yorker. I don't walk slow. I don't know why I went into almost this meditative, dreamy state and I started walking really slowly and kind of moseying which as I said I don't do and I was passing this little boat pond in New York in Central Park and they it's not big enough that it could ever have real boats but they now and then you'll see a model toy boat in it and there was this one little boat and I don't know why I've passed this boat pond a million times. I grew up in the city. I used to play by the boat pond when I was little. And I see this boat and I just kind of daydreamily mosey over to it. And I look and this is probably the one time in my life. I don't know, maybe when I was three or four playing there, but probably only time in my life since I was like six years old that I went and stopped and looked at one of the little toy boats in it or model boats. And they almost never even have model boats in it anymore. But I went and looked and it had my dad's name on it. If you have a question you want me to answer, send it to hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put question of the week in the subject. I know I usually say first names, but if you want to be completely anonymous, let me know. And feel free to reach out anyway, even if you don't have a question. I can't wait to hear your questions and hear from you. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to share that my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciency Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife is available now for sale. 
If you go to wtfjusthappened.net, you can see the link to buy it. I'll also have the link in the podcast show notes. I know many of you want to know how exactly did I come to change my mind about the afterlife? Well, this book is all about the first stages of my exploration into this afterlife evidence to where I'm at today. It starts with the awful part of when I lost my dad, how as a science-minded atheist, I first began to explore if there was any possibility of an afterlife, and what and who I found most compelling. I also share some stuff that was not so compelling, such as a very clearly fake psychic medium reading and a pretty ridiculous seance, but that's balanced by some amazing peer-reviewed studies on mediums, medium readings, parapsychologists, and just a whole bunch of what the fucks, including some really inexplicable personal things that happened to me, and some really incredible signs I got from my dad. Despite the topic, it's actually funny, mainly because I'm just like such an awkward person. And you also get to learn about all the amazing people and incredible characters I met along the way, as well as more about the research that helped change my mind. And some of the people you learn about have become some of my really good friends and mentors today. So go to wtfjusthappened.net and order it. If you've already read it, please rate and review on Amazon. I cannot tell you how helpful that is. And share with any friends who might be interested. Thank you all. I'm so excited to finally share the full details of this crazy exploration with all of you. Ready to embody that next level calm and confidence? It's time to activate that part of your subconscious. Get the self-paced 11-minute-a-day program by me, author of Confidence Introvert and Certified Subconscious Reprogrammer. Go to stephanietoma.com slash confidence boost. Use code WTF50 for $50 off. As I'm sure you've heard, the Supreme Court in the United States just overturned Roe v. Wade which protects a woman's right to have an abortion if she chooses. Now it's illegal in some of our states. If anyone is looking to obtain an abortion and you live in a state where it's illegal, you can check the following sites. I suggest using a VPN, virtual private network, which hides your identity on your computer or phone. These are the sites, womenonwaves.org, WomenOnWeb.org, AidAccess.org, PlanCPills.org, WholeWomen'sHealth.com, AbortionFunds.org, and of course Planned Parenthood. I linked all of them on our Instagram at WTF underscore just underscore happened underscore, and they're saved in our stories. These are also great places to donate and see if they need any help. That's the end of part one of my conversation with Darren McKenney. Join us next episode for part two as we continue our conversation about the evidence that convinced us skeptics of an afterlife. 
I'll put it in the show notes. But if you want to find Darren, you can find him at Seeking Eye, S E E K I N G dash the letter I dot com. And that links to his YouTube channel. To get more information on what the fuck just happened, go to wtfjusthappened.net. There you can order my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciency Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife. And you can learn all about how I came to conclude that there most likely is an afterlife. You can also learn about the early stages of my grief and the amazing, fascinating people I met along the way. You can also read about how much I harassed them trying to get evidence, see if they were cheating, and see if they were sane. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It makes such a difference, especially for a new podcast like this one. And if any of you have had a crazy what the fuck yourself, have any questions, feedback, or just want to say hi, reach out on either Instagram at WTF underscore just underscore happened underscore or email me at hello at WTF just happened.net. And remember, you don't have to draw any final conclusions as you wonder what the fuck just happened.